0: Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21, Matthew 21, we'll find our way to verse 33, Matthew twenty one thirty three through 46, this is the word of God for us here this morning. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And his tenants took the servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Will you pray with me? Father, even now, your word is glorious, challenging, powerful. And there should be things here, Lord, to give us comfort, And to make us tremble. What I would ask Lord. Is that you would do. Mighty. Amazing things. In your word. The old Puritans would have said. Lord I pray for. Unction. the, The empowering of your spirit. To think and speak the things. That would help your church. Know you. And I would pray for our hearts that we would be wide open to hear your voice and to be led by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you remember the story of the prophet Nathan confronting King David about his sin? That's familiar, right? David had stolen a man's wife. And then had ordered that man into a hopeless military situation and caused his death. And so we know that King David, this great man, was guilty of adultery and murder. And God sent the prophet Nathan to him to confront him. But Nathan was no fool. Nathan knew better than to walk up to a king with his finger pointing and an accusing way about him. He knew he needed to do this a little more cleverly. Because, truth be told, when you go, walk up to a king and tell them they're wrong to their face, they may not take it well. So instead, Nathan told King David a story. He told the king about a man, a mean man, who stole his poor neighbor's little lamb. It was a pet to the neighbor, but the man stole it and served it for dinner. And the man who stole it had plenty of his own. And Nathan showed how greedy the rich man was and how selfish the rich man was and how cruel the rich man was. And the story just burned David up. He hated hearing about someone mistreating another person like this. And so in anger, David shouts out that that man deserves to die for his crimes. You know what came next, right? Nathan lowered the boom. He looked at David and he said, You are the man, O king. And then the prophet confronted King David with his sin against the Lord. And David was caught and David knew it. And it led to David's repentance. You know what? That's not a bad way to confront people with their sin, is it? do not you wish we were clever enough to do that every time? Although I guess we might be afraid if anyone ever said, I want to tell you a story. But... To use a story and a common emotion to confront people, that's that's smart. And that's actually what we see Jesus do in our final passage here of Matthew 21. Like the wise prophet Nathan, Jesus is going to paint a picture that will infuriate the the Jewish religious leaders who hear it. And as those men express their anger at what happens in the parable, they're going to pronounce their own condemnation because they are guilty of the sin they're condemning. Now, if you're a note taker, I would say to prepare a room for a set of five points and we'll get to them in just a minute. But first, we need to be reminded of the context of this passage because it matters. And then we'll go over the basics of the story so we're sure that we get it. Then we'll come back through and we'll get these five points that'll challenge all of us to respond rightly to Christ. So what do you need to see from the context of this passage? This is Matthew 21, and, and we've been watching the week from Palm Sunday, Jesus in Jerusalem. And on Sunday, Jesus formally entered into the city of Jerusalem. He, he rode that colt, the, the, the foal of a donkey, right? And, and, and he proclaimed himself by riding that little animal into the city that he is the Christ, he is the king, he is the Messiah. And many people rejoiced at Jesus coming and many people shouted, Hosanna! Many of the religious leaders were a little put off by this arrival of Jesus and his claiming to be the king. Well, on Monday when Jesus came into the city as a teaching illustration, he cursed a fig tree because remember, Israel, the nation, was like that tree They should have been fruitful. They should have been a repentant people, but they weren't. And then Jesus walks into the temple and Jesus forcefully drove out the money changers and the animal sellers and he clearly showed by his actions and by what he saw there that Israel had not repented of her sin. Israel was not ready as a nation to meet their king. And then on Tuesday, Jesus is on the way back into Jerusalem and the disciples are amazed because they see the cursed fig tree has withered already. And Jesus goes in and he teaches in the temple and the Jewish leaders, they challenge Jesus's authority and Jesus showed them to be dishonest in their questioning. They didn't really want to know. They didn't really want to follow God. And then Jesus taught them with a parable. And Jesus showed Israel to be a people who were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They, they, they really denied any commitment to God by their lack of, of repentance and their lack of obedience to the commands of God. And they had withered like that fig tree had withered This is a pretty heavy context, don't you think? And now we pick up this encounter between Jesus and the religious and Jesus has another story to tell. Now, it cannot surprise you, can it, that this story is going to show us that the nation of Israel should have repented and they should have welcomed Jesus as their king, but they didn't? Fits the theme, doesn't it? This story is a parable, Remember, friends, a parable uses simple, understandable earthly concepts, but they present to people a deep spiritual meaning. Not everybody's going to understand the spiritual side, but the story is really easy to understand. And parables often use something weird, something dramatic, something that's a plot twist, to really drive the point home. So be ready for that as you listen to it. And here's the story. It starts in verse 33. Jesus says here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and he went into another country. Now this is easy. None of you right now are going, "Oh my goodness, I just can't understand scripture." Right? We have a fictional master of a house, and he does all the work to set up a vineyard. And all of the details about the, the fence, the tower, the wine press man, everybody in the first century who knew anything about vineyards would have understood it. And the man leased the vineyard out to tenants. That was normal, that was familiar. Landowners would hire out people because, you know, the rich guys don't actually want to work in the vineyard. Did you know that? They like to have other people work for them. Some things haven't changed in history. And these, these men wanted other people, you know, I'll hire you, you go work in the vineyard, and then at harvest time, you get to keep a portion of what you have harvested and the grapes you've squashed, and you give me a portion, and that'll be my payment, And we're all going to benefit from this. It's very simple. It would have been a very formally agreed upon amount. You give me this percentage of the harvest, and then you can work the vineyard and you can keep the rest. This is totally normal, mundane, boring story. Then comes the first plot twist. 34 to 36. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he said other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Now, it's weird. It's time for the tenants to pay the landowner for the use of the land, so we send the servants, the right guys, just, you yeah, know, we're here to collect what you owe, what you agreed you would pay, your rent's due, right? But the, but the people living there have decided, you know what, I don't think we will pay And they choose to mistreat the servants, and they do violence to the servants. The story even says that they kill some of the owner's servants. That's a surprise. There's no reason for a tenant to do this. This was a good agreement. They're breaking the law. They're being evil. But the story gets stranger because the patient owner sends more servants. Is that what you would have done? No. And the evil tenants treat these other servants just as cruelly. And if you're listening to this story, what are you expecting now? You're expecting the owner to bring the pain, aren't you? <laughs> Here's the next surprise. 37 to 39. Finally, he sends his son to them saying, they will respect my son But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The owner tries one more time. The owner sends his own son to collect from the tenants. And these foolish men, these evil men, they plot. They know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. They convince themselves of a lie. They think if they can kill the son, that they'll get the land. And so they take the son, they cast him out, and they murder him. And if you're hearing this story for the first time, how are you feeling? Mad! this this is wrong that's not how it's supposed to go everything in your being tells you this is wrong and so jesus then actually lets the listeners finish the story in 40 and 41 he says when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to those tenants you know jesus could see it in their eyes don't you They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. I mean, I love it. Jesus asks the crowd, these guys that are not being honest with him one little bit, right? What do you think the owner is going to do, guys? And everybody knows. In fact, honestly, everybody wants this outcome don't they? Don't you kind of deep down want to, come on, bring the thunder. (laughs) The owner's going to come. He's going to wipe out the murderers. And then he'll put trustworthy, decent people there. That makes sense. You know what's coming next? What's coming next is that moment that's like Nathan confronting King David. Here comes the you're the man moment when Jesus turns the tables on them. See, this story, it's easy to understand, folks. I mean, was was there anything I just told you that was confusing? I'm not smart enough to handle the Bible. No, this is easy, and it makes you mad. You want justice on these guys. And then Jesus is going to turn and he's going to look at the Jewish religious leaders and he's going to look at the nation which has refused to welcome him as the king. He's going to look at people like you and like me in unrepentant sin and Jesus is going to say, you're the man. You're the tenants. He's going to show Israel and he's going to show us that we need mercy from God or we're going to be the evil tenants in the story. So let's go back and let's go over the story and let's see a set of truths that I believe God would speak to every one of us today. First point, God is greatly patient. By the way, is that not true? God is greatly patient. Back to 33. Here, another parable Jesus said. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Now, when that story opens, with a picture of a vineyard, with a fence, and a wine press, and a watchtower, every person standing in front of Jesus should have known this story already. Because this story was about them, they should have known it was about them. Because in Isaiah chapter 5, God uses an almost identical story to speak about his relationship with the nation of Israel, the rebellious nation of Israel. I mean, fences and hedges and wine presses and everything. And in that story in Isaiah 5, we find out that the kingdom of God is the vineyard, and God is the vineyard owner, and the people of Israel are the tenants. And what we've got to see here is the great patience of God as we look at how God related to the nation of Israel from the time of Abraham all the way through the time of Jesus. Time after time, if you know your Old Testament, God called the people of Israel, follow me, obey my words. Time after time, God called on the people to turn away from their sins and serve him. Time after time, God brought correcting judgments on the people and even on the land. Sometimes God even allowed them to be conquered by enemies or even taken captive to Babylon, right? I mean, read the book of Judges. What happens? Israel sins. God brings in someone to conquer them. They say, oh God, why did this happen? Please help us. God rescues them. They say, God will follow you until Israel sins. And they do it all over and over and over again. And they get worse and worse and worse every time. Eventually, God said, if you don't stop, I'm going to let the Babylonians come conquer you. They didn't stop. Babylonians came and conquered them. God rescued them from that. But they were never a people that wanted to follow the Lord. Never. They never turned in their hearts to give their devotion to the Lord. Never. So what did God do when these people were unfaithful? God could have destroyed this rebellious nation. He could have squashed them like bugs. He could have. And if He had, He would have been completely within His rights to do so. You know how I know God would have been within his rights to do so, besides the fact that he's God and we're not? By the way, that's enough reason to know that God has the right to do it. Go back and read the contract that God signed with Israel, read Leviticus, read Deuteronomy. Look at the end of Leviticus 26, 27. Look at at Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29. Watch God say, if you obey, I'm going to bless you like you wouldn't believe. If you fight me, I'm going to crush you. The people of Israel were like the tenants who had made a commitment to obey. But they wouldn't pay up when the time came. We'll follow you, God, except we won't. So what did God choose to do? God sent prophets to the nation. God sent men to Israel. And you know what the job of a prophet was? Tell people the word of God. If you want to know what prophecy is, that's primarily what it is. Men came and spoke of the commands of God. The prophets reminded Israel of the law of God that they had all sworn to obey. And the prophets warned Israel of the judgments of God to come if they wouldn't repent. Judgments that were almost always already written in the books of the law. They promised the people great blessing of God if they would return to God. And they brought the word word of God to bear on the people of God. And the people wouldn't turn. By the way, side note, you want to know what the gift of prophecy is today? It's when someone brings the word of God to bear on the lives of the people of God. Prophecy is so seldom in the Bible about telling the future as if you're you're having visions, like a psychic. Most often, The prophets just told the future based on what was already written in the word of God and how God inspired them. And when you have somebody who looks at you and honestly and accurately and clearly brings the word of God to bear on your life so as to call you to repentance, that's what prophets do. Okay, side note over. What's the Bible tell us Israel did? They abused the prophets. They imprisoned the prophets. They beat the prophets. They stoned the prophets. Hebrews lets us know in chapter 11, some of them they saw it in two. Not like in a magic show, by the way. They did it for real. And it was ugly and it was awful and it was brutal. It was like Israel as a nation had signed a contract, here vineyard owner will give you all of the money that you deserve. And then when the vineyard owner sends people, it's like they're looking at him saying, come on, hit us as hard as you can. You won't do it. You're not big enough. But here's what we learn first. Friends, God is patient. God has been patient. He was patient with Israel. How many years did God put up with that? Haven't you ever read the Old Testament and wondered why God would put up with hundreds of years of this? Don't you? Don't you feel that way when you read Judges? When you read First and Second Kings? But friends, God has been patient with every last one of us in this room. And everyone who hears this by recording, God has been patient with you. Because all of us, absolutely all of us, have done things to deserve the wrath of God. All of us have heard the commands of God. And all of us, at different times, have refused to obey the commands of God. I don't care how old you are in here. If you're old enough to think, you've probably done something on purpose to disobey God. We've earned the judgment of God. But God has been merciful to us. He has never given even one of us in this room the fiery hell of judgment that our sins against him deserve. I had a friend once, I would ask him, you know, how are you? And his answer is always better than I deserve. Someone would ask him, why do you say that? And he says, because if I'm not in hell, it's a good day. That is grace. Friends, know this. You have been like the tenants who have refused the master his due. Know that you are the kind of people who would stone his servants rather than obey his word. Know that you at times in your life have stiffened your neck against the Lord and turned your back on his commands. You've done that. We've all done that. Know this and thank God that as he reveals himself in the Old Testament, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God is patient? Thank God that he's patient. Second point, God sent his own son. Point number two, God sent his own son. 37 to 39. Finally, he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. I don't think many of the Jewish religious leaders standing there would have grasped this part of the story just yet. Not while Jesus was standing there in front of them. But you and I can see what this is pretty clearly, can't we? This isn't hard. God was patient with Israel. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And the people of Israel fought against every last prophet that God ever sent them. But God had a bigger plan than that anyway. God was planning to send His one and His only Son. God the Father sent Jesus the Son to Israel. And what did the people do with Jesus? They did with Jesus exactly what the tenants did with the landowner's son, They grabbed him, they dragged him outside of the city of Jerusalem, and they had him nailed to a Roman cross. They murdered the Son of God because they did not want to turn away from their sin, and they did not want to yield themselves to the Lord. And you say, oh, no, the Jews didn't do that. That that was the Romans. They all kind of worked together, didn't they? And again, friends, we've got to understand, this is for Israel and this is for you and me today. It was to rescue us from our sin that God the Father had to send God the Son, so that he could live and die in our place. It was evil, it was pure evil that Israel would crucify the Son of God. But this was what was necessary for the price of of all of our forgiveness. You can't be forgiven if that price isn't paid. So thank God, thank God, not only that he's patient, thank God that he sent his son. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Third point. Third point. This is a biggie. God will judge all who reject his son. God will judge all who reject his son. 40 and 41, Jesus said, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let up the venue to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. It's interesting that at this point in the story, Jesus lets the listeners finish the story. Why would he do that? Because he knows their own sense of justice, their desire for fair play, their desire for the rich guy not to be cheated They were not going to pretend that the tenants should be allowed to go free. No, no. Even these spiritually hardened religious leaders would be indignant at the audacity of the tenants to dare stretch out their hand against the master's own son. This cannot stand. And there the Jews got it right the master is going to bring judgment down on the heads of all who would murder his son and all who would murder his messengers. After all of his patience, after all the orders that he gave, that we should turn from evil, that we should obey his words, how could the master do anything less than destroy the tenants who were in the vineyard and lease it out to others who are going to handle it rightly? That makes so much sense, doesn't it? Now, there's two truths here. One of them is actually going to come out more in the next couple verses, so I'm not going to overdo it here. This parable is about the nation of Israel. It's about the kingdom of God. And the Lord is here telling Israel, you guys are about to be stripped of your privileged status as the entry gate to the kingdom of God. You're going to lose that role. But there's another truth that you and I have to see here. If we don't see this, we miss it. We miss it all. There is a pressing truth. God is going to judge everyone who rejects his son. Okay, stop. That doesn't hit you hard enough. It doesn't. God is going to judge everyone who rejects his son. Do you feel that? Don't let it pass you by. You know it in your head and you let it be a little footnote. Oh, this is also true. But God says, hear it today. God is going to judge with righteous, eternal, perfect wrath. Everyone who refuses his son. If you're here and you're battling against Jesus, if you're here and you're putting off following Jesus, stop and listen. You're like the tenants. God has every right to your soul. God has every right to your devotion. He made you. You're his whether you want to be or not. And he commands you to put away any idea that you get to rule your own life. He commands you to believe in the Lord Jesus. That's what you owe the vineyard owner. And he has sent his son. And Jesus has already died and risen from the grave. And now the question for you is one of the utmost importance. It can't get bigger than this. Are you, are you willing to face the wrath of God? Are you willing to look at the master and say to him, your son's death, your son's sacrifice means nothing to me? Are you willing to say to God, I don't care about Jesus. I don't care about you. Punish me for my own sins. Hit me with your best shot. Are you willing to do that to the one who spoke the universe into existence? You can't survive it if you do. You have to turn. You have to surrender to God. You have to stop saying you get to be in charge of you. Bow to Jesus. You're going to bow to him anyway. At the end of eternity, you will bow to Jesus. Why not do it when he's offering you mercy? I urge you, get under his grace before the wrath of God comes. Church, there are days I do think that we fail in how we share Jesus with others. Because Jesus is so loving, and Jesus is so gracious, and our hearts are so broken for our lost friends and neighbors out there, and we come off soft, maybe even too soft, in the way that we tell others about Jesus. But in a passage like this when do you feel the iron that's here? God is going to judge. And there's no denying that fact. Whether you like it, whether you don't like it, God is going to be right as he judges every last person who rejects him and his son. The wrath of God is real. Hell is real. And there is no hope for us if we don't find hope in the son of God before the day we die. Fourth point. Fourth point. God's plan is amazing. God's plan is amazing 42 to 44 Jesus said to them Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone This was the Lord's doing and it was is marvelous in our eyes Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. Like the confrontation between Nathan and King David, this is Jesus giving the Jewish leaders the you're the man moment. Jesus looks at that crowd, looks at the people who had just let their anger out. They had just balled up their fists and said, those tenants deserve to die. Jesus looks at them and he asks them if they've never read in their copies of the scriptures the verse, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, by the way, you've got to understand, it is a hilarious, sarcastic insult Jesus just gave them. Now, don't judge me because I said he's being sarcastic or insulting. He did, though. How do I know? Jesus is quoting at them Psalm 118, 22 and 23. Most of the people that are hearing this had the entire Old Testament memorized. Memorized! And Jesus said, never read that verse, have you? And that is... The same song, Psalm 118, that's the same song that all the people were singing on Palm Sunday when Jesus came up and they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were quoting Psalm 118 just a few verses before that. Jesus knows they knew it, but he's pointing out that they're being ignorant, foolish. He's mocking them. Because the Jewish leaders have missed the significance of the plan of God. And right here, Jesus gives us three elements to God's incredible plan. This is why I say the plan of God's amazing. Because Jesus is right here going to give you three parts of the plan of God. First, what does Jesus hint at? The Son of God is going to be crucified and rise from the dead. Now you can say, I don't see that there, but pay attention. The story earlier pointed out that the landowner's son is going to be killed. That we know is Jesus dying, right? But you know what else that is? That is the stone rejected. But Jesus also knows he's not going to stay dead. He's not like that. Death can't hold him. Jesus will rise from the grave. Jesus is going to conquer death. Jesus is going to reign as the king of the universe forever. And that is the stone that was rejected, now become the cornerstone. That, that picture of the stone is actually very useful, by the way. The, he says the Jews are like, they're like a builder who looks at a particular squared stone and they go, I don't like this stone, and they throw it away. But what they don't realize is is they're looking for the right stone to be the most important stone in the entire building. It's the very stone that they throw away and say, we don't want it, that becomes the the cornerstone, the most important stone in the entire construction. Because, you see, the cornerstone is that foundational stone on which the entire building rests, and all of the lines and all of the angles of the building for them to be done properly have to find their origin in the way the cornerstone is laid. It's the most important stone of all. They looked at it and said, we don't need it. Jesus is rejected by the Jews, but Jesus is going to be king of the world, including the Jews. That's kind of funny, don't you think? This is God's amazing plan. And by the way, I want to just give you a couple quotes from the New Testament because this theme never dies in the New Testament, folks. In Acts 4, 10 and following, 10 to 12. Peter is preaching there. And he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, the guy's just been healed. This Jesus... Peter says is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Apparently Peter remembered this a few about a month and a half later whatever. Second Peter later in his life so again that, that acts versus Peter early in the ministry of the church Let's go about 30 years later, right before Peter dies. First Peter 2, 6-8. Peter says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Do you hear? Here it is again. Jesus Jesus dies, rises again, and he's, he's the absolute final answer to, are you with God or against him? Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 20. Paul says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Yeah, the plan of God is amazing. The life, the death, And the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our salvation. But there's another thing, a second reason why the salvation, uh, the plan of God is amazing. Jesus, he tells us here, uh, he tells us to the Jewish leadership, because you as a nation have rejected Jesus as Messiah, Jesus said God has taken the kingdom of God away from them. That's an amazing thing that nobody in the Old Testament saw coming. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you to the Jewish leaders and is going to be given to a people producing its fruits. Now, now here's something you need to know. The word people there, it's not the word just meaning other persons. It's the Greek ethnos. The kingdom of God is going to be given to another ethnos, another people group. This is the truth that God is going to build his kingdom, not through the ethnic descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel, but through primarily believing Gentiles. Now, don't let yourself get confused in this sense. God is not at any point being unfaithful to any promise he ever made to Abraham or the forefathers. There's no racial prejudice here. Any descendant of Abraham who will come to faith in Jesus Christ will inherit the promises of Abraham, which is citizenship in the kingdom of God forever. But... Because the nation of Israel, as a nation, constantly and repeatedly rejected Jesus as the Christ, they are no longer going to be the central expression of God's rule on earth. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to be saved, how'd you do it? You go to Israel and you become part of that nation as the entry gate to find the the grace that you need through the sacrifices at the temple. That's how you do it. But now Jesus says, no, no, no. It is no longer going to be that way. Instead, I'm taking it from you people because you've rejected God as your king. And instead, the kingdom of God, friends, is right here. And this is a crazy place for God to put it. Because the kingdom of God is available to every single person who will turn from his or her sins and put their faith in Jesus. Doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter who your parents are. Doesn't matter how pagan they were before or how pagan you were before. If you come to Jesus in faith, you're saved. God so loved the world, right? That He gave His only Son that whoever, every believing one, will not perish but has eternal life. See, the truth is, friends, since the time of Jesus, most of the people who were ethnically of Israel have rejected Jesus as their Savior. And that's tragic. But God promises us that before, even before Jesus returns, by the way, there's going to be a bunch of those people, physical children of Abraham, that are going to be saved and they're going to be ready to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. I, I really believe that's what Paul's giving us in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But that's, that's again, that's a big, heavy Bible study. Um, all you ladies that do Bible study fellowship, you've already figured it all out. I don't need to do that. God's, God's plan. Here is amazing. Third piece, third piece. Of why God's plan is amazing. Jesus shows us the amazing truth that in God's plan that God is going to judge everyone who judges or who rejects Jesus. Again, that was another point that we did in our sermon, but it, it's part of the plan right here, right? Jesus says the one who falls on this stone is going to be broken to pieces, and the, when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. Jesus says, "I'm the cornerstone." But Jesus says, if you fall on him, if you are offended so as to trip over, stumble over Jesus and fight against Jesus, you're going to be shattered. You're not going to win that fight. By the way, have you ever tried to fight a rock? It won't work. Jesus says, if you stumble on me, you fall on me because you don't like me, you can't stomach me, you're going to be shattered. And if he falls on you in judgment because you've rejected him, you're going to be crushed to powder. Again, stop and hear this, hear these words. Let them cause you to tremble. Listen to me. You cannot defeat Jesus. You can't sneak past Jesus. It is not your place to judge whether you like the way Jesus does things. You cannot overthrow or overrule Jesus. If you fight against Jesus, you will be broken. If you attempt to stand against Jesus, you will be crushed by Jesus. And there is no middle ground at all. And that's why we've got to find the grace of Christ. Because if we don't, we will be judged. Fifth point then, this may be the most obvious point in human history. Fifth point, do not reject Jesus. Sometimes you have to say the obvious. Have you ever noticed that? If you don't believe that, read the warning labels on your product. They shouldn't have to be said, but they do need to be said. And guys, if you fight Jesus, if you reject Jesus, you'll be destroyed. Shouldn't have to be said, then don't reject Him, but we have to say it. Look at 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. What should come next, friends? Just me off my notes even. What should happen? If they realized he was talking about them, what should they do? The next word should be, and they fell down and said, what must we do to be saved? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they, the crowds, held him to be a prophet. End of chapter. At the end of the day, the priests understood that this was a parable about them and they knew that they and their people were the tenants in the vineyard and they knew that they had rejected God's word and what's it going to cause them to do? Would they repent? No, they would scheme they wouldn't arrest Jesus now. It might get him in trouble. It would be socially unpopular in the eyes of the crowd. They would not even stand as men and say, we're against you there, the cowards. No, they looked for the chance to catch Jesus in an out-of-the-way place. But the point here, I think, is for us all. Watch these men. Watch them. They heard from God directly, and they knew it, and they turned their backs, and what you and I need to see is what they were doing is deadly, and the point is that you and I would take warning, don't reject Jesus, God's command is super simple, let go of the right of owning your life, you do not get to own yourself. Be willing to turn away from sin. Be willing to obey God. Be willing to believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Ask Jesus, Jesus, I need mercy because you died on the cross to pay for all the sins God would ever forgive. I need your forgiveness. Jesus rose from the grave. Believe that. Believe that he gives life to everyone who surrenders to him and come to Jesus in faith. Throw yourself at his mercy and say, Jesus, please save me. But don't think even for a moment that Jesus is going to ignore you if you ignore him. If you oppose Jesus, if you say, I won't bow to Jesus, I'm going to be my own master, you will face the fury of God. God will not let you trample on the blood of his sacrificed son as if it doesn't matter. God won't let you refuse him his due and get away with it. God will do justice. And that justice is terrible to consider. Not that it's wrong. It's just scary. Don't turn from Jesus. Come to Jesus and be saved. And again, so many Christians will hear this and we're like, Whew, glad this doesn't apply to me. Don't be a fool. You can't hear this and assume this is only for the lost. Now, I believe in eternal security for sure, right? If we got Jesus, we have forgiveness. That should brighten your day. If you have Jesus, you have God's grace. If we have Jesus, we do not have to fear the wrath of God. But a passage like this one still should cause you to tremble over what could have been your judgment. A passage like this should cause you to desire to worship God and obey God. A passage like this should cause you to want to share the gospel with other people. A passage like this should cause you to want to be honest about the danger that others are in. A passage like this should cause you and me to bow down to God as our King and follow Him with every last moment of our lives. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are good. We are weak. Your gospel is glorious. And Lord, we would ask you to enliven our hearts to the truth that you've just shown us in your word. Don't let us give a ho-hum. Yeah, I know that story already. because this is life-changing. This is earth-shattering. This is just amazing. Please, God, please, have mercy on us to make us see again, every day, the cross of Christ, the great great salvation we have please god save souls please god bring to bring to faith bring to repentance bring to commitment believers who need that encourage us by the grace we've been given challenge us to live it do mighty things We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.